Hey everybody, welcome to episode 78 of Literary Disco, Nancy Drew. Today, in the long-anticipated sequel to our legendary Hardy Boys episode, we take on the female side of the teen detective genre by tackling the very first Nancy Drew novel, The Secret of the Old Clock. But before that, we'll discuss two short essays published in the New York Times Book Review about whether you should ever be ashamed of what you read. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hello there, Mr. Strong. Hello, guys. Hello, hello. Hello, Julia. Todd, are you all recovered from AWP? Barely. I so Your yearly adventure? I, I am not. Because here's the thing. So I, I went to AWP last week. AWP is the annual convention of writers and writing programs. And this year it was held in um, beautiful Minneapolis, Minnesota. Absolute shithole. Absolute shithole. And... Um, oh. You just... <laughs> you, I mean, you're just like ruining thousands of our listeners' lives. Or just dismissing yeah. their lives, well, it, I guess. You know, I mean, it was, it was very... It was very off. gray out there. Here's what I came back with from AWP. A couple things. Number one, cheese curds. I've never had cheese curds before. Do you guys know about cheese curds? Mm-hmm. I've heard of them. I have not had them. Were they good? I've never it's, had them either. It sounds it, disgusting. I didn't know what it was. It's cheese that's deep fried, and then you dip it in in the restaurant I went to into a smoked um, ketchup. Excuse me as I belch my good. cheese curd back up to you. Um Oh. I uh, Four days I later. thought it was going to be disgusting, but then I thought, well, why would I think deep fried cheese is disgusting? It was not. I I gained five pounds while I was in Minnesota for five days, and I suspect it was one hundred percent cheese curd. Well, why would that be gross if French fries are good? I I don't know. I don't know why. Yeah. I think it's just the word curd. I don't like the word curd. Nothing. Yeah. yeah. The word, yeah. Nothing. It's like hearing what head cheese is. Yeah. It's like just head cheese. Ugh. I had, a, I had a friend who recently brought to a barbecue a, like, a sauce with little, like, what are the, the little smokies? You know, the oh, little, tiny little uh, sausages, dogs. yeah. Right. And he had this sauce that he made, and he was so proud of it. And this is not a man who cooks. <laughs> and we were like, wow, this is so cool. And we all tasted it. We're like, this is amazing. He's like, yeah, grape jelly is in that sauce. It was a barbecue sauce with grape jelly huh. as its base. And it was fucking delicious. That sounds good. And I ate way too much of it. Yep. But it was one of those things that you don't want to know. You right. Know, you'd rather just eat it and not think about it. I'd be like, oh, a great barbecue sauce. But yeah. it was great jelly. So th- that's great, Ryder. L- let me get back to me for a second here. <laughs> More about the cheese curds. The second thing yeah. I learned at AWP in Minneapolis is actually fashion related. So I, I get my hipster cues from going to AWP every year because that's it's all young writerly people and, and they share a lot I think with hipsters the bow tie is out the bow tie is completely out I didn't see anyone yeah. wearing a bow tie at AWP um, that's fair which I thought that was great because I know Julia last time you and I went there together uh, in Boston a lot of bow ties fucking filthy with bow ties filthy with bow ties yeah um, and then the third thing that I realized while I was there um, which made me happy is just how many people absolutely love our podcast <laughs> No, that's not it. How many people just love writing and reading? It's you know, I I get this deep sense of ennui about Friday, about why am I there? What's the purpose of these things? And you know, it's sort of depressing the the brown nosing and the the social climbing and all the stuff that goes on. But then at the end, it's just about people 
who love to read and love to write and are really highly invested in it. Um, and that, you know, that always makes me feel pretty good when I, uh, when I come home with 87 copies of, you know, zines and literary magazines I'd never heard of previously. Um, I learned from your tweets that someone thought I was tall. <laughs> so people came up to my booth all day long. So I had a booth for UC Riverside. And lots of folks who are literary disco fans. And they, as usual, were all fascinated by you, Julia, and wanted to know things. So I, I actually wrote down a couple questions. I am very mysterious. <laughs> so one person... A.K.A. not famous or important <laughs> at all. Uh, uh, a woman named Caitlin uh, wanted to know if uh-huh. you were tall. And I said, how tall do you think she is? And she's like, well, in my mind, she's like like 5'11". And I said, if, wow, she, if she were 5'11", awesome. she'd be taller than both Ryder and I. Um, I said, that's I think she's great. about 5'... Maybe that's what she meant. Yeah. That she felt that I was bigger and better than you guys. Oh, you for sure are. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I think she's yeah, about 5'4", or 5'6", somewhere in there. She's like, oh, wow, that totally changes my perception. Um, there was another person, uh, a guy, who wanted to know if you were really married. <laughs> nope. I have a fake marriage. Yeah. <laughs> Making up uh, this character, Greg. Yeah. That's funny. It was weird. Um, and then a lot of people who, um, who wanted to know when your book is coming out, um, and, uh, and were mm-hmm. eagerly awaiting that. And I, I said, I don't know, because I don't think she's written one. Um, but so here's the highlight though, people, and I, I tweeted a photo of it. Our great fan, Evan, uh, showed up. You guys might remember Evan from episode 69. Uh, he's a 12 year old kid who listens to the show and his mom had written to us. And then he wrote us with some questions, um, and some book suggestions, but he showed up with his dad, uh, Paul at the book festival. And I got to sit and chat with him for a bit and he was just an awesome kid. And, uh, his dad was super nice to bring him. I got to chat with him. Yes. Ryder got to talk to him on the phone. And now everyone on earth is going to come to AWP and look for me. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! But it was... It They'll was, forget about this in a year. It was super cool. Um, I had a good time and it was great to meet Evan. Um, it's always neat to meet uh, the listeners of the show, but particularly when they're kids that are really into books and reading, because all three of us were kids that were really into books and reading. And uh, the, the cool thing is if you're alone and, and, and don't know if there's other people that are into what you're into... There are a billion people that are into what you're into, and that's that's yeah. fun and cool to experience. Absolutely. Well, that's great. Yeah. I think I'm going to go next year again. I just didn't want to go to Minneapolis in the winter. Yeah, it was fucking freezing. It snowed, and um, that that was my. Oh, and I should note also, United Airlines, uh, go screw yourselves. You lost my fucking luggage, and I froze to death for almost twelve hours. <laughs> Poor baby. I had to buy a coat. But you. <laughs> oh, that sucks. Can you charge United? Just send them the receipt for your. Code. I might. I might charge them. I might. We had next year AWPs in LA, so it's going to be great. And um, we're all oh, we're all going to really? stay at Riders House. Well, then I can actually yes, go. Yes, you can. Yes. Guys, I will come Guys. to AWP. Oh, it's I'm going to propose a panel for the three of us. Done. Right. Boom. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, we're in. All right, so uh, in their bookend section. From April 7th, the New York Times Book Review had James Parker and Charles McGrath respond to the question, is there anything one should feel ashamed of reading? And um, they both had their responses. Parker analyzed different forms of shame. He had a top-down shame and a bottom-up shame. 
And McGrath took a uh, more personal approach, talking about how he covered up his copy of Little Women with brown paper when he read it when he was a, a kid, I guess, or a young man. Uh, and then he also points out the reverse phenomena, phenomenon of uh, book bragging, you know, which is proudly displaying the books that you deem respectable or highbrow in an attempt to impress people. But both of them pretty much said the same thing, which is no, you shouldn't be ashamed of anything that you're reading or that you have read. But we thought this was a good starting point for a discussion among the three of us, particularly since I have admitted to book bragging on this podcast before, keeping my um, never-read copy of a book entitled Kant's Transcendental Idealism <laughs> for decades, just because I thought it made me look smart, and because we created this podcast with the, uh, the express goal of being as omnivorous as possible, reading highbrow and lowbrow equally, which I think today's episode of reading Nancy Drew is, is a testament to. So, what did you guys think of this, these, these essays? One or both of them? Well, uh, it was interesting. Um, now, longtime listeners may recall that in my old apartment, I kept probably about 40 or 50 books in a separate room, which I called the shame corner, which I <laughs> still had, and I still kept the books. And now that I've moved, I've been forced to integrate them all into this public area. Um, I mean, I think that... All right. I, here's where I come down on the question. I'm just going to ignore the essays, I guess. Um, <laughs> I don't think I don't think there's anything that anyone should be ashamed of reading or trying for the first time. But as someone who wants the culture to push themselves to be intelligent and have taste, I do think there are things that people should be ashamed of liking. You know what I mean? Read everything, <laughs> like a little bit. Does that make sense? It does. So, well, okay, so like I read Twilight. You're a bully. I am not a bully. I you, read it all. You are part of the bully culture. Yeah, You're well, a bully. That, that, that's You're the a question: bully. is like, at, at what point does having taste or cultivating taste or believing that that readers or any consumers of entertainment should cultivate taste turn into being judgmental or judging somebody for their for their reading taste. That's kind of the question that that I was grappling with when I read these essays. Because I, I mean, I think the essays sort of are beside like it. They they kind of create a straw man of the whole question of shame. Like it's like no, no one should be ashamed, but shouldn't like it's. I, I kept thinking of like exercise or like if I see somebody's like really like unhealthy in their life like they're unhappy or unhealthy like I don't necessarily think that they should be ashamed of that but I could say like yeah you know if you ate healthier or exercised you probably wouldn't feel as bad or be as unhealthy and I mean it's kind of the same thing like yeah you could read better books and probably have a better experience or or like books more or but is that the same? Like, at, at what point do I say, oh, you only have read Twilight and Fifty Shades of Grey and a bunch of really crappy romance novels or something that I think is not great literature, therefore I'm, what, judging you as a, as a thinker or as a reader? Like, I, I don't think I, I really am or do. Right. Well, 
You know what? I sort of have a, a strange relationship with this for two reasons. The first is that I wrote five books that were the most commercial... Right. I forgot about that. ...guilty pleasure books anyone could ever hope to pick up or read, which is I wrote five books based on the TV show Burn Notice. And in the essays, they talk about these Star Trek uh, novelizations. And there, there are literally 50,000 Star Trek tie-in books or novelizations or whatever. And so when I was writing Burn Notice, um, and you know, I, I, I wrote those books because I wanted to. No one forced me to write them. Um, and I wanted to learn how to write commercial crime fiction because that's what I wanted to do. And that's, you know, it's obviously what I'm doing now. Um, but what I found out when I published those books is for some people, those were their favorite books. You know, I would go to book signings and there'd be, you know, 50 or 100 people there to get their Burn Notice book signed. And, you know, every six months when I put out one of those books, that was their favorite thing, and they absolutely loved it. And, you know, I'm not going to pretend that it was the most intellectual process of my life. It wasn't. Um, you know, it was, it was straight popcorn to write those books. I tried to make them funny and interesting and um, at least somewhat more intellectual than I think the average book would be, but not by much. You know, I, I just wrote to have a good time to blow shit up in the city of Miami, basically, and, you know, to make it sexy and fun. But people attached their own emotions and desires to those books that were separate from what I put into them. And I, you know, I, I, at first when I was writing them, I felt like it was sort of, just sort of a lark, you know, oh, this is just a fun thing I'm doing. And it's, you know, it's, it's nice to get all these readers and I'm learning how to write commercial crime fiction after writing sad literary fiction all my life. Um, but, you know, after my first book came out and I met these people and I found out why they like to read these books, and the comfort that these sort of familiar characters gave them to be able to hold that familiar character in their hands and be inside that character's mind and what that meant to them, it completely changed the way I looked at writing the books. Mm -hmm. um, but I also recognize they're a total guilty pleasure and I would have never purchased one on my own. You know, <laughs> I never, if my brother had been writing Burn Notice instead of Monk, um, I probably would have never read it. And I, I didn't even read most of my brother's monk books. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a strange thing. I don't think you need to be ashamed by um, your taste. I think people are ashamed of what other people will think of them for just enjoying something that's popular. I mean, it's something we've talked about yeah. before. You know, that just because something's popular doesn't mean it has to suck. Yeah, and I want to clarify my hardline position, which is still hardline. Like, I think anything can be good. Like, any genre can be good. And, I mean, we've kind of seen that with, you know, in with TV becoming so good all of a sudden when after 50 years everybody thought it was, like, the worst crap you could possibly, you know, ingest. And then uh, suddenly, like, all these great writers and actors and directors go to TV, then we see a genre, like, becoming really good so i feel i feel that way about children's literature ya graphic novels everything but if you are reading something and you are like wow this is really bad you know then i do believe that you should push yourself to read something else but if it's yeah if the best thing you've read is twilight and everything else you've read is todd's terrible burn notice books for example <laughs> then sure you can be you should always be proud of the best thing you've read what you think is the best thing you've read you know what i mean so you know push yourselves towards the high point of your taste even if it's something that julia and Ryder the snobs think sucks balls 
Yeah, but I, you know, I, I'm a snob too. I mean, I, I I really believe people should read good stuff. Yeah. You know? Because I think I think reading great literature um, makes you a more empathetic person, makes you understand people right. better, and you're just not going to get that in a Star Trek tie-in novel most of the time, you know? And so I think there is, the, the snobbery is earned, I think, in that regard, um, particularly if you're not someone who gets to run into the rest of human society very often. The books can give you that. Well, I was trying to think about what I, I definitely, what I do judge, and I think, because I don't know if I could say one, like one type of book or one book, but, but I think I can say if somebody says to me they never read or they have no desire to read, yes. like, that's hard for me. Like, I think we should be ashamed of that. Like, I think you should be ashamed yeah. if you never read at all. Like, if you're one of those people that's like, no, no, I don't need to read, right? It's like, that's like breathing, you know? It just, why would you just never want... The, there are so many books out there all available to you. I mean, at this, at this point, it, you know, in human culture, you can get books for essentially for free online anytime you want. I mean, you, I know you can rent stuff from the library for free and have it downloaded to your Kindle. And it's like, right. if you can't, if you have, if you have no desire to push yourself to read at all, then I feel like, oh, like you're completely missing out on a whole aspect of human experience that like you're saying, Todd, I think is essential to empathy and knowledge and and the ability to put yourself in somebody else's mindset in a way that movies can't and television can't. I think that those are mm -hmm. obviously powerful, amazing art forms and, and music too. Like they can put you in, uh, but there, there's something different about a book. A book puts you into an intellectual, actual mindset that is created by another person. It's somebody's imagination that you're entering. And, um, I don't know, like, I, I think about how much I've learned about the world through fiction or nonfiction or poetry, like, you know, subjects that I wouldn't be interested in that suddenly I was because of a book and or because of somebody's yeah. ability to write interestingly about that. And it's it's usually not because the subject was intrinsically interesting or or it was because somebody's ability to write about it drew me in. And that... I don't know. I just like I would. I I think people should be ashamed. And unfortunately, I think that that's kind of standard in our culture now. Is that most people don't consider themselves readers. They read whatever they have to read to get through high school. If they go to college, they read whatever they have to to get through college. And then what? Like maybe they pick up a book that they're interested in because they're interested in the subject already. You know, baseball history right. or World War II history, or like they they know that they're kind of into vaguely a subject, so they pick up nonfiction books about that. Like, and especially guys. I mean, I'm speaking of like guy friends I have that like kind of proudly don't read, even though they're smart people, and that sucks. Like, and I think that there should be more more we should speak more openly about that sucking. And I think that that should be something we publicly shame more than like what books you're reading. Cause that we're actually losing this art form. People are not reading. Um, well, I think well, that, actually people are reading. People yeah. are reading. Well, a they're lot, reading Facebook but, status updates. That's not the same right. thing. That's <laughs> the thing. But you know, okay. you know what these essays made me think about um, was when everyone was sending us their photos of their bookshelves and on Twitter when we were talking about the bookshelf fees or whatever we were calling them. And we'd see these all these huge shelves and it'd be like, you know, the great works of literature. And then like five out of 10 of these bookshelves filled with, you know, Dickens or whatever, um, would have 
Twilight or Fifty Shades of Grey or um, Dan Brown or, right. you know, or biography about, you know, a baseball player or, you know, some stupid Paula Deen cookbook or something like that or Rachel Ray's biography, you know, My Life in 30 Minute Meals, which I don't think is a book, but I would read it. Um, and seeing that sort of democratization of taste in those pictures was really cool yeah but invariably someone who was younger they'd have like a picture of 20 books and it would primarily be hunger games which i really enjoyed twilight um and you know some teen series i've never heard of and they'd, they'd apologize and say oh i don't have a lot of books and sorry about just being hunger games and twilight so it there's something even in the 15 or 16 year olds who listen to our show and send us their photos where they know already that, oh, if you're reading Twilight, it's this hugely popular thing. It's something that you might get mocked for, yeah. um, which is, it's an, it's an unusual thing culturally. Well, that's um, what I, even, but, even in those essays, um, one of them, I think McGrath talked about the fact that like Melville and Hawthorne, you know, bemoaned the dime novels of their day. And it, it's true that right. they were, they were the, the, the lesser selling authors. Right. I mean, these are right. the, the, like I mean Melville was penniless. It's like th these are people who were writing what we now consider the greatest things ever written in the English language, uh, but at the time could could not sell a book. Um, and yet there were always successful dime novels or horror novels or romance or slave narratives, which were really popular. For instance, like there's you know there's there's always sort of this seedy popular book that's available. And I don't I don't you know like. I don't really have a problem with that. Like to me, there's nothing wrong with the existence of those books. There's nothing wrong with people reading those books. Obviously, like I'd rather people read than not read. I, but I also guess like I don't have a problem with the slight pre prescriptivist attitude. Like I think it's part of our. It's 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 important to, to be judgmental to a certain extent. Like in one of those essays, you know they they. I think it's Parker talks about Howard Bloom and it's like if Howard Bloom mm -hmm. is coming over and you hide your books and sort right. of making like the I'm sorry Harold Bloom. no Howard Bloom right Harold, Harold Bloom. Bloom sorry Harold, Harold Bloom. Bloom it's like it's sort of making Harold Bloom into this like evil judgmental and you know I don't I haven't <laughs> read enough Harold Bloom to know but it's like I I actually think that it's important that there are critics out there and people that push for you know a sense of taste and argue that we should or should not read certain books um i don't think that there's anything really wrong with that being open for discussion like i remember we actually talked about i don't think we talked about it on air but i know the three of us talked about the essay that was in slate from last june um against ya uh right. blanking on who wrote it but it was a really popular essay i mean i think it has like three thousand comments um Ruth Graham against YA and she's right. basically saying we should be embarrassed because we're reading stuff written for children um, and you know her point was that again this she was basically arguing for shame and people really responded negatively to her and I think yeah you're always going to be if you're if you're going out on a limb and saying you should only be reading this type of book or not reading this type of book you're always going to be attacked for that but in that conversation in that those series of attacks people are staking a claim on something that I think is important to stake a claim on. So whether right or wrong, I think we should all stand up and say, this book sucked and you shouldn't have read it, or this book was great and you should definitely read it, whatever it is. And as long as we recognize that it's not, it doesn't make you less of a person or 
you know, that, that are, that, that that's always a conversation that's in flux and is constantly changing. Like, I don't have a problem with that conversation being had. I think in fact, we need to be having that conversation. I think that there's a lot of important nuggets in a lot of the things you just said, Ryder. First of all, I want to just clarify that I don't think any of us means that popular equals bad. I mean, there's a lot of bad books that are very unpopular. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> oh, I would say most unpopular books are bad. Yeah, see, I've published yeah. 13 so, books, <laughs> uh, so it's at least 12. So, um, you know, 12 so I, I think popularity is almost irrelevant here. I mean, yeah. because I can't, I can't speak too much to the culture. So, like. For me, it's just a question of curiosity and what makes books special, you know, as opposed to music or great movies. What makes books special is that they take so long to read and it's such a private experience. So a mm-hmm. solo, deep, like 20 hours alone with you and your brain and your interpretation, um, even if you're reading Gone Girl for a book club, you're still putting in that 15 hours alone thinking it through. Um, the 25 hours I spent reading The Secret of the Old Clock, for example. Um, so, like, it really is encouraging, <laughs> encouraging introspection. You mean 25 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, you know what, though, Julia, what you're talking about sort of relates to our last guest, Jill Esbaum. You know, her book, House of Frau, has been very popular. It's been a big bestseller. But when there's been negative reviews of it, and, and there's been a few, um, and this isn't speaking out of school, Jill would talk about it too. Um, you know, the, the negative reviews have been like, why would you as a reader spend the time with this awful person? Oh, yeah, I hate that. You know, this that. person who's cheating on their husband and having indiscriminate sex and all this stuff. And it, the criticism then becomes a critique on you, the reader, that you would choose to spend time with a bad woman, basically. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's, that's that so weird strange. term. That's dangerous. <laughs> I feel like that's yeah. Yeah. almost that's, verging on censorship in a really... Yeah. Right. But it's not that different than some of the reviews, the negative reviews you'd see of Gone Girl. You know, yeah. of, oh, if you're getting enjoyment from spending time with that woman, then, you know, what's wrong with you that you find glee in this killer? Gone Girl um, is such a good example, though, of everything we're talking about because it's popular. I mean, I liked it. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people hate it. Too. it. I didn't love it, but the thing is, like, it made people think about feminism and marriage and, you know, like, are people inherently evil? And I think what I ultimately think is important is rewarding curiosity. So what Ryder was saying about reading books where you don't know a lot about the subject, I think where what people should be ashamed of is saying, I only (laughs) like this one exact thing. I only like chicken fingers, and I will only eat chicken fingers. Um, yeah, I completely I, that's agree. That's what I think is wrong. I fucking love chicken fingers, though. I mean, I love chicken let's fingers call a so much. Here. So chicken good. fingers are. If I could only eat one thing, chicken fingers. Would be. <laughs> but you should try. You should put yourself out there. You know, for yourself, for your own good, for your family, for our culture, for every for every reason. You should try to for Hillary. For Hillary. For America. <laughs> You know what, though, what you're saying, Julie, reminds me of something funny. So several years ago, I interviewed the nonfiction writer Charles Bowden, who passed away uh, several months ago. Um, He was a a great nonfiction writer. Um, He wrote a lot about the drug wars on the Mexican-American border in in Texas. And he wrote about um, the savings and loan crisis when John McCain was involved with that. Great nonfiction writer. Um, But I interviewed him at this event here in the desert, and um, someone raised their hand. 
and he was a gruff dude like he was one of those guys who wore one of those safari jackets even though he wasn't on safari like cool. you know with all the pockets a lot of pockets and he had like three good teeth and they were all in the back of his mouth and he smoked while we were talking inside of a library just the cliche of you know like the hunter s thompson kind of guy but a fantastic writer at any rate uh, someone in the audience raised their hand and said uh can you tell me your favorite novel and he said there hasn't been a good novel in 50 years i don't i haven't read a novel in 25 years there hasn't been any good published then i i said to him how would you know if you haven't read them and he, then he just glared at me and i thought well this is now an awkward experience <laughs> <laughs> but it's that is that sort of absolutism there's nothing good being written anymore so i'm not going right. to well what even that's even what weirder to me is i had a discussion once with a with a friend and hopefully she doesn't listen to the show um <laughs> where she said we were, we were talking about the movie 12 years slave and she said well i don't need to see that movie i don't want to see that movie and i said why and she said well because i know slavery was horrible why would i why would i want to see the movie and i'm like why would you cut yourself off from an artistic experience and she's like well why do i need to have that artistic experience if i already know that 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 slavery was this horrible thing and i already have all the emotions and the 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 you know sense of injustice about this horrible historical event and and i get it i don't need to see the movie that's just too horrible of a thing for me to watch or to experience and to me it's like well that is the point is that it at times is not horrible. At times, 12 Years a Slave is a funny movie that you find yourself laughing at horrible things or you find yourself disgusted by things that you didn't know you could be disgusted by. Or, you know, you, you get a, a glimpse into the specific, you know, like for instance, in 12 Years a Slave, you know, there's this crazy dynamic between the slave-owning guy and his wife and like that dynamic right. Which you could say, like, oh, I understand so much about slavery and I don't need to, to go there. But, like, I had never considered, like, the dynamic between a plantation owner and his wife and how that is complicated by the relationship of them to their slaves. Like, and it's so interesting and awful. And, you know, again, it goes back to empathy. Like, I had this sense of empathy for people that I was never going to be empathic for. And my experience of the of the world got expanded by it, you know. And and I think books could do that even more than movies. Um, but I feel like a lot of people, like you were saying, they they just want chicken fingers over and over and over again, right. and that's so depressing. At least I just would have get... preferred Twelve Years a Slave if it had just been called Indiscriminate Number of Years. Because I, as I was going, I was like, what year are we on? As <laughs> How watching. many more years? <laughs> yeah. How many more years is this guy going to be a slave? Well, it's 12 years. All right. I, All right. I well, speaking of titles that give everything away. <laughs> oh, hold on. Let me make the transition to Nancy Drew because I have the perfect transition. So I had, I got called jury duty. Uh, and so today, oh my God. I oh, was the guy amazing. in the jury duty waiting room reading Nancy Drew. And oh Nancy number Drew, one, number and one. I decided, fuck it, I'm going for it. I'm just going to, I'm going to experience the shame. Like, because if I, you know, a 35 year old man reading Nancy Drew in like, in a, in a setting where everybody's got their books out, like, you know, this is the place where every, because you can't have phones, you can't have computers, right. all you can have is your, your books, and everybody had their books out, and they had really good books, like, I was looking around, I saw, um, 
What did I see? Well, it was a lot of history. There was um, a Barack Obama memoir. Um, there, you know, it was like the classic, like, oh, we're smart people, we're all educated. And then there I was reading Nancy Drew, feeling creepy. Because I, I was trying to think of a content, and here's the way I got over my shame, is that I had a pen, and I take notes on all of my books, but especially the books we read for Literary Disco. So my, my only saving grace was that it did look like I was doing research because I was underlining things. Either that, or I looked like a complete pedophile, underlining my favorite sections of this teen detective girl well, to... Uh, I want to let you know, Ryder, I have just searched uh, Twitter mm-hmm. for Ryder Strong and Nancy mm-hmm. Drew to see if anyone... Yeah, did anybody see me? Uh, no, Wait, no one saw it. That is hilarious. But it was, it, was int- it was palpable how much shame I felt, and that was the point. I was like, I want to experience this. And, you know, it is really hard for me to read something in public that I don't want to be associated with. Like, I realized that, yes, right. I do feel that way. I felt exactly like these authors were talking about. Um, like I said, I think it was because it was kind of creepy... You know, like, I think if I'd been reading the Hardy Boys, I would have felt, like, no shame. I would have been like, I'm having a lark. But, like, having a lark reading Nancy Drew is just harder. Well, actually, that's hilarious, and we should transition there. But I did, I thought of this point earlier, and I wanted to make it. I don't, I feel that people should resist the shame of reading books about or for people who are not like them. So men should not be ashamed of reading books for girls. You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So I'm glad you did it. No, definitely Good not. Good for you. Breaking barriers. Thanks. I, but I'd be interested the number of men who read romance novels. I, I suspect that is a very low number. Well, there's actually, I think the ratio gender-wise is pretty bad in men's favor for reading in, in general. Women right. have always been more voracious readers. And I think that's... A historical fact too like it's it's interesting and yet of course as far as awards for writing and uh you know recognition as you know writers of an art form men have of course been way overrepresented. so well and i think it's interesting to note that it took two boys to solve the crimes in the hardy boys but just one, one nancy drew which we'll come back and talk about in just a second Do I get to say that, Ryder, since I'm doing the Nancy Drew stuff? Okay, great. We are back, everybody. Um, and boy, do we have a treat for you. I think this this has been something we've been intending to do for quite some time. Um, we are reading Nancy Drew Mystery Stories number one, The Secret of the Old Clock. It's about a missing will. I'm not going to tell you where the final clue to it is located. <laughs> It's about the intricacies of probate law. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I started, you know, once I realized that, you know, like 90 pages in where they're like, where could the will possibly be? And I was like, it's in the fucking clock. It's in the fucking clock. Then I looked on the back of my edition, which has... The Hidden Staircase, and lists all the next, you know, the Hidden Staircase, the Bungalow Mystery. I was like, well, is this just telling you where the major clue is in every single one? No, I think the mystery, the mystery at Lilac Inn, I believe in that. I believe that there, there could be a surprise in there. 
Don't you think? They they learned after a while? I I sincerely doubt that. The clue in the diary is number seven. <laughs> like it actually just says the clue in the diary. I there was the weird drifter okay. who killed part the of me that was thinking, is this a way for kids to feel, like, smart? Like, you're ahead of, you're like, oh, I know where it's going to be at the old clock. But, I don't like know. Like, Blue's Clues? All right, yeah. let's slow it down. Let's slow Sorry. it down. Uh, okay. Ryder right. is very busy being a parent. So, I took on the task of looking up where Nancy Drew came from and what the story is here. Because, as I hope you guys all know, Carolyn Keene, not a real person. Um, this book has been ghostwritten, uh, as well as every single Nancy Drew book written by Carolyn Keene. Um, so it might have actually been written via the Ouija board for its coherence to reality. But continue. Okay, that's not that's not real, Todd. <laughs> We're gonna refer you to an old. old it, it might have literally been written by ghosts. <laughs> so, oh, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Continue. The mystery of the ghost writers. Um, okay, so uh, blah, blah, blah. so this is actually a really interesting story, so I'm glad to look it up. Um, so Nancy Drew was created in 1929 by the same man who created the Hardy Boys. So he had created a bunch of different series, and they were all really successful. Um, so he wanted to do one for girls, and his name was Edward Stratermeyer. Um, so he had this syndicate, and he wanted to create a girls' uh, story. And basically, he created Nancy Drew, a woman, uh, Mildred A. Wirt, wrote the first one, and then Edward Stratermeyer immediately died, basically. Um, the first three books were published. They <laughs> were insanely in successful. Boat explosion, by chance? <laughs> boat explosion. Uh, <laughs> yeah, did he die in a boat explosion? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if we just randomly mentioned a boat explosion right at the beginning of this discussion and then never addressed it again, that would seem appropriate to me. Um, yes, it would. So so these books were ghostwritten by different women um, for quite some time, even though um, Stratemeyer himself had been very traditional in his views to women. He thought women should stay in the home, but he thought a plucky heroine would sell well. But then once these young writers got their hands on it, they created this character of Nancy Drew. Now, what I've read, I have actually never read Nancy Drew before today, which is amazing, but I haven't, um, is that she, like, starts out plucky, and then in the 50s, she got, like, super weak and whiny, and now, apparently, she's back. Um, and, and they actually still edited being the books, too, right? Like from what oh, I yeah, they edited out a lot of the racism. And... Oh, oh, I didn't know that. I thought they, they made her less plucky and more sort of, in the 50s, I thought they re-edited even the book that we read and, and uh, changed But the, the version that we read is the original Yeah, text. we read the original, um, which is mind-boggling. 1930? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like... That's, it's amazing. It's absolutely it, amazing. But it, it... So, has it always only been written by women? I, not not recently. Now it's written no. by lots of people, right, Julia? Uh, it's been written by lots no. of people. So um, it's just the first few were women who were really into this character um, and basically collectively created her. But um, a man named Walter Kerrig, who wrote volumes 8 through 10, 
Um, he tried to claim the rights with the Library of Congress and blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's just me reading hmm. off Wikipedia. So a lot of different um, men and women have written them. In fact, I, we can't say who, but we know a man who ghost wrote a couple of Nancy Drews. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, we do. So I forgot about that. They've been going around them, and around. He? Yeah, he did. Um, and so that's the story. He, didn't he try to add, like kinky sex into them or something crazy like that i think he tried to make them socially progressive which is actually something we can talk about <laughs> but i'm not sure i don't want to say i don't want to say but yeah we don't want to get anyone sued i think that's probably yeah. wise. um so the plot of the secret old clock the secret of the um, old clock come on yeah <laughs> so the mis- the mystery of of this and you guys can correct me if I have it wrong, uh, because it's a serpentine plot. Um, as I read it, the mystery is a guy died and left a will, leaving all of his money to these bad people. Rich people who are already rich. Rich, that are already rich. But there's some belief, I don't know if you guys caught this, there's some belief that he might have written another will that superseded that will. Yes. Every single that person in the county. Everybody knows, that everybody knows about. <laughs> right. So the basic plot of this book is Nancy Drew, perfect human being, goes around saving puppies, children. Christ-like figure. Old ladies. She saves a puppy, an old lady, and a child. Like, literally. A child who's never seen she again. She saves them all. Known. A child that's never Well, the puppy's never seen. What is the point of the puppy and the dog? Okay, she, there's scenes of her saving everybody, but she just goes around meeting people who have been screwed over by this rich family because they, some, they hid a will. or Actually, they didn't even do anything wrong, really. They just, inher- no, they, they just they, they, took the will that was given to them and, and acted it. <laughs> Right or or saw it right. through legally, but then there's right. there's reason to believe that the crazy <laughs> old person who left a hundred thousand dollars to these rich people might have written another will and hidden it, and all the poor struggling with no witnesses, people with no yeah so right so it's just Nancy Drew meeting and people in knows need. About it. Well, you know it's weird because this plot is really strange. I, I, <laughs> And I feel like with the Hardy Boys, this the Hardy Boys. Do they have more of a mystery? I can't re- really remember, but I feel like the Hardy yes. Boys involved. I guess a little bit, a couple more steps in, as far as like solving just the nature of the the mystery itself. Whereas the nature of the mystery right. here was like really straightforward. But I, I'm having a hard time because I can't remember the Hardy Boys well enough. But. This one seems really stupid. So, this one seems really It's really stupid. stupid. So how, how Nancy gets involved in this is she is driving down the road and a moving van darts out in front of her. At the same time, a five-year-old girl just darts, darts into the out road. in front of her. For no reason, just darts, darts into, into the, the road. road. In the 1930s, cars didn't move that fast, by the way. Um, the five-year-old is nearly killed by the moving van, but instead falls off of a bridge into water. Nancy 
jumps out of her car, finds the child on the side of the road where her mouth has not touched the water. However, she is soaking wet. This is a very important point of the plot. Nancy saves the little girl, brings her to the house where she lives with two old ladies. And then we find out that the two old ladies have been screwed over in this will. And Nancy suddenly believes there is a secret will and and then meets a bunch of other also, people who have the same oh, problem. Oh, and she also has to find the people who nearly ran over the five-year-old girl. That's an important so, part of it as well. I just want to review. In the first ten pages, <laughs> they are crazy. Yes. All right. So we have a speeding moving van. We have Nancy Drew, who is a bad driver. Let's get real here. She almost hits a lot of people. Uh, Yes. We have the mention of a boat explosion. Right. Uh, We have the marriage proposal thing is later. But, like, it's just all this crazy shit right off the bat for, I agree, a totally boring mystery, which is a missing piece of paper. Um, but I like the craziness of all the background. I enjoyed that. And I have to say, like, I was impressed by the action. I was impressed, you know, like, there was a, it was as action-based as the Hardy Boys. Like, you know, it wasn't like Nancy Drew was, I mean, she's running around and putting herself in really stupidly dangerous situations. Just like the Hardy Boys, where I'm like, you're going to get killed, kid. Like, what are you doing confronting these robbers or whatever? You know, it was the same with this story. I was kind of like, wow, we're really encouraging pluck to a new level, you know, where people are, are kind of meddling. At a, at a point, I started imagining like a, a wicked style rewrite told from the point of view of the rich family who gets screwed over by this meddling like following the letter old. of the law. Yeah, by doing exactly what <laughs> they took care of the old person who who well, died. Oh, wait a minute. Wait left a minute. All this money so the, <laughs> the evil. No, I know they're bad people because they, right? Because they bitch and they moan and they treat st- store owners like horribly. But other right. than like Nancy Drew telling us that they're horrible people and then being like whiny and exp- like told that like they actually don't do anything really that wrong. It's not like no, they're trying they to hide say, anything. They didn't hire the movers. They didn't hire the steel no. so, <laughs> stuff from everybody. So that's the absurd thing. So, okay, so there's this there's this presumption. This guy, Josiah, is the one who died. And there was this will. And in the will, all the money is left to this wealthy family made up of scumbags. So when Nancy Drew encounters the little girl who's been knocked over the side and meets these uh, people, meets these two women. These two women have just sold their furniture to uh, these men in the van, but while selling the furniture to these men, they also robbed her of some other stuff in her house. And so you think that there's going to be some intersection of these plots where these thieves have stolen the furniture from this uh, from these two women to hide the fact that there is this secondary will. In fact, that's not the case. I, I hate to pr- provide a spoiler to the listeners. It's just a, for reasons as yet unfigured out, a huge black market in furniture in 1930s upstate New York. But then they also go rob the, the other house. Yes. That's connected to this family. But... For no reason, For no right? reason. Like, it's never explained. Just like so in the Hardy Boys. So there's just a ring of robbers that are happen to pick, 
Yeah, there's like ten people in the town. Was the Hardy Boys as ridiculously? Yes. Remember when yes. they all went and so tried on wigs? Knows everybody. Or costumes or whatever? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, well. by the way, my I think uh, the opera singer teacher <laughs> oh, God. in this story oh, God. is the equivalent of the wig shop, costume shop in, uh, in the Hardy Boys, which is it, this fundamental question of what town is this where it's like this bucolic agrarian beautiful town but then it also happens to have a retired opera I singer talk teacher about just waiting to discover town in the same way that the hardy boys had like two wig shops in town <laughs> it doesn't make any sense it's like you can't have both of these things it's like either you're in the big city and the kid detective is working in the big city or the kid is in the country you can't combine elements of both All right. just because it serves your story i had a lot of problems with this scene <laughs> Uh, first of all, the all the people who supposedly desperately need this inheritance need it for stupid shit like opera lessons. Okay, that's they are not needy right. if that's what they need it for. Hold on, there there is an old lady who has broken her hip. All right, right. she needs a doctor. She's she needs it. Everybody else step on. She's also the least interesting character. The farmer twins want. They're like, well, we have a successful farm, but we want to travel. No, okay, not good enough. But back to the opera singer. I know. Singer. They're like, I've always wanted to see friends this time of year. Back to the opera singer. <laughs> so, funny. Nancy, this is... You're a bachelor <laughs> farmer with your brother. Like, what's the deal? Like, <laughs> you have dogs and everything's good. Like, what you... Yeah, also take care <laughs> of your also, puppies. Also, did you not expect... There was a weird moment, but there's... <laughs> yeah, take care of your puppy, which never explained again. No. But there's also this weird moment where the two ants who are raising Judy, the five-year-old who falls off the bridge in the beginning... And so there's this household where these two great aunts are taking care of their their great niece. And the, you're like, oh, these two women are struggling to, to raise a child on their own. And then it's explained that the farmer brothers were going to marry those women. But then they didn't. But then they didn't. So I was like, well, that's convenient. Now the book's going to end with the brothers marrying the women. And they, they didn't. didn't. Like, All right. And they didn't say hi to wait, each wait. other when the will was no. being read. I totally agree. I just want to finish my opera just, singer thing. Chilling. I was like, we just set up the... Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, go on. <laughs> That's okay. So the opera singer thing is the only time that Nancy Drew is just a total dick. So she takes this girl <laughs> who desperately wants to be an opera singer to this guy, to this teacher, and then makes her audition for him at the last minute, okay, without warning her, which is just rude. And then he's like, yes, I will train you for money. And Nancy's like, wow, I really hope you get that money. Good luck. (laughs) What an asshole. Nancy should have paid. At least for a couple of lessons. Am I wrong? No, I, I, I totally agree with you. And the entire time I was thinking, Nancy's coming from a fairly wealthy family. She could throw these people a couple bucks to <laughs> get this woman's fucking hip fixed. Or, yeah. you know, pay for the fucking song lesson. The, the, the section with the opera singer, it's on page 50 in my book. And just to go back to what Ryder was saying a moment ago about the absurdity, um, it goes like this. Before Nancy returned home, she stopped an old-fashioned house on a side street. It was the home of Signor Mascagni, a famous voice teacher who had retired to the small city the year before, but took a few outstanding pupils. Nancy introduced herself to the white, bushy-haired, florid-faced man, 
I mean, it's just, it's like the person was sitting there and they're like, hmm, I wonder if we could get Placido Domingo into this scene. <laughs> oh, yeah, let's, let's just drop him in on a side street. Oh, God. Signor Mascagni. Oh. But we all know that the best scene is the one where she buys a dress, rips it, and then convinces them to give it to her for half off, right? Yes. That well, was anti-Semitic. That was anti-Semitic to me. Really? <laughs> no. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> um, there are some really weird things about this book. I, I, I kept noticing. I don't know if you guys know, but there, this book has like an obsession with, um, with the scenery and like the the like U.S. countryside. Have you guys? Did you guys notice this at all? Yes. You, you have any idea mm-hmm. what? Like this recurring. There's recurring descriptions. So like on, on page thirty four. Selecting a recently constructed highway, Nancy rode along, <laughs> glancing occasionally at the neatly planted fields on either side, beyond the rolling hills. Pretty, she commented to herself. Oh, why can't all people be nice like this scenery and not make trouble? And then there's this whole section of the book where she goes to summer camp for a week yes. and just, like, rows in a boat and hangs out on a river and, like, does archery and there's just all this weird like um pro country just folks america stuff that i don't under it feels really um it's an agenda like there's clearly an agenda to say like everybody should should like spread out and you know join the suburban masses out in the countryside or something i don't know it's like a it's a weird thing that it kept hitting me and then the other thing is the question of of economic uh, disparity in this book, which was also, if I remember correctly, was in the Hardy Boys. Yes, but big class. It didn't strike me as socialist as it does in this book. This is a communist book. <laughs> this book, because I'm going back to the, the, the what is the 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 family, the evil fam, the, the Toppums. Okay, yes. the Toppums. What have they done wrong besides be rich? They're now, rude. I think this is. They're mean. Yeah, they're rude. They're rude. But they haven't done anything legally wrong. No. And we're supposed to thrill and enjoy them having to work at the end. Like like the two daughters were like, ha, 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 you get stuck in the workforce, you brats. But like Nancy Drew doesn't have to work and she basically does detective work because it's fun. I mean, that actually it's she says fun is what she's after. Like it keeps talking about her eyes sparkling and twinkling. So, I mean, I honestly, I'm not, I mean, I'm in all seriousness, I'm, I'm not that, I'm not really being serious, but there, it, it's, it's interesting to me that this is so clearly a book that's written in response to the depression and written in response to such economic disparity that being rich is villainous in of itself. Yeah. And that Nancy Drew is writing social injustice uh, by distributing wealth. By by redistributing wealth, essentially. By, like, standing up for... I mean, because you don't even know why Josiah Crowley, which is such a great name, by the way. It's like, yeah. it's Josiah Crowley died and left money somewhere hidden in the clock. Like, that <laughs> that guy... Spoiler, he, there's it's no, in the secret there, clock. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> there's no explanation of what he... Like, how yeah. he made all this money. Or I guess there was a stock market, or there's some vague, like... But there's no explanation of why he didn't just rewrite his will or or what was wrong with him really. Like Oh there, no. There's, there's just... a hint to what's what's wrong with him. Um Where? It, 
It's right here on page 44 and 45. Oh. He was the dearest man you ever saw, Allison added. Some people thought him queer, but you never minded his peculiar ways after you knew him. Uncle Josiah was very good to us. He always told me that he'd back me in a singing career. Uncle Josiah was gay. And was, making his, and was making his money in the arts. And that was a Shonda under the people in the 1930s. Wow, There's a lot of strangeness right? around Josiah's personality and his queerness and his peculiarities. And his secrets. Yes, and well, his secrets. This, oh, that makes it better. <laughs> the, I, this is definitely a very pro-arts book as well uh, in regards to my earlier yes. complaint mm-hmm. that like people, and I too was joking before, but people no matter their economic status should have access to music and travel and birthdays and all that right. stuff oh so, god the birthdays right. jesus christ right. <laughs> there is a prolonged scene where nancy bungles into a birthday party because she's a fucking idiot and can't put the top up on her car and then <laughs> bungles into a birthday party that you think is from like little women it's so sad <laughs> but then Nancy the old... is there, so all of a sudden it's the best birthday they've had in years. Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. such a weird story. But can we talk a little bit about um, how this is also a book about um, the lack of attorney-client privilege that existed in the <laughs> 1930s, and how Mr. Drew, uh, Nancy's father, is openly um, destroying attorney-client privilege. There's a judge <laughs> who destroys yeah. attorney-client privilege. There's absolutely yep. no confidentiality in anything uh, throughout this book. Nancy would be in prison. She would be uh, in contempt of court for the things that she is doing throughout this book. And I don't know about you guys, but when I was a kid reading books, I found nothing more interesting than, as I said earlier, the intricacies of probate law, which is what this book hinges on. I just did a little Kindle search for the amount of times the word probate showed up in a young adult novel in 1930s about a plucky 18-year-old heroine? Uh, five times. Five times they discussed probate law. Yeah, but you know, that's good. That's good. I mean, we all learned something. Um, and back to the attorney-client privileging, one thing that makes this book both great and ridiculous is it all hinges on gossip. So one of my right. favorite things is during the aforementioned dress ripping um she's like hey she she negotiates her dress cheaper and then the the saleswoman literally goes it's been a real pleasure waiting on you miss drew the saleswoman said after miss reed left and nancy was putting on her suit but how i dread to see those topham sisters come in here they're so unreasonable and they'll even be worse when they get josiah crowley's money the woman lowered her voice. The estate hasn't been settled, but the girls are counting on the fortune already. Like, what? <laughs> the dressmaker knows. Everybody Everyone in knows. town knows. <laughs> Everyone they had, knows. They know the ins and outs of probate law. They know how many witnesses you have to have. They know how long it has to be before they find it. They know everything. It's great. These guys are legal experts in upstate New York. The other thing I don't understand is how Nancy didn't know about any of this stuff already because literally every single person in the town knows about what's happening and about the probability of a secret will. Yeah. I mean, for Nancy being the person who's going to solve all the crimes in town, she's she's the one hapless rube 
who, who no one has actually bothered to mention anything to. So, oh, the descendant of Nancy Drew, and this makes me, I mean, I liked it anyway. I liked how silly it was, and even though we're making fun of it, like, think about how many different things happened, as Ryder said. Like, right. she's going all over this town. But what makes me yeah. like it even more is the obviously direct descendant of Nancy Drew is Veronica Mars, which is a show that yeah. a lot of us loved mm-hmm. and Ryder was on. Um, but mm-hmm. it was... A great show, and you know well, Veronica on, Mars is so lovable. You're on the show. Yeah, I played yeah. like a asshole Nazi. One of like a regular. You're on the show. No, and no, I just did one one episode. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Let uh, me go back and update your IMDb then. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like obviously you didn't watch season three of Veronica Mars. <laughs> <laughs> Todd only made it through the first season. Apparently, yeah. you're the reason uh, that show was canceled. <laughs> Sorry, man. Wah, wah. But yeah, I mean, like, when uh, Veronica Mars is awesome, too. And linking them in my... As a character, I mean. And linking them in my mind makes Nancy Drew all the more lovable. Like, yeah, she's she's cashing in on her dad's cool business and doing whatever she wants. One thing I learned from my research, which was interesting, is um, there was a cool New Yorker article about why certain of this guy's franchises survived and some didn't. And the writer was guessing that, you know, in the 20s and 30s, most stories for kids were Horatio Alger or, like, heavy moral things. And the character would start Mm -hmm. out, you know, bad or wrong. And then they would get better, but no kid likes to read that. So, basically, when he created these kids that were basically perfect, people loved that. They were, like heroes that could just go do whatever they want so that is why this writer was guessing that of all the things nancy drew and the hardy boys survived yeah there's a um there's a a classic screenwriting book that's been around for the last i don't know 10 10 10 years maybe more 11 years called save the cat oh Um, yeah it's by blake snyder and it's you know it's this kind of the standard like crass screenwriting book um, in terms of structure. And the reason it's called Save the Cat is because he advises you to, um, when you're writing a screenplay, when you introduce your main character, the quickest way to um, get empathy for your character is to have them do something heroic. Save a cat. You know, if, if, if you, if, then that person's likable. No matter what they do, as long as they save a cat, you're going to be with them. Nancy Drew saves a child in the first page, then saves a puppy, then saves an old lady. I was like, oh my god, this is where like, this is the save the cat moment that keeps giving. It just keeps, she just kept saving cats. The ultimate anti-save the cat, by the way, is the the first episode of House of Cards, which opened with the main character killing a dog. And I think it was an intentional reference to save the cat, by the way. Like, I think he, they literally introduced the character killing a dog. Um, But yeah, I couldn't believe how saintly they made her, and in a way, I guess it's hard to remember that this is an era of, you know, that also, I mean, well, it was eight years before Superman was created. Right. Um, but it's an era where that was the model of, of, of heroism, was, was the unwavering sense of truth and justice in the American way. Um, so it seems naive to us now, but it's, it's actually, it's pleasantly naive. Like, I wasn't annoyed by this book, you know. I, I, I mean, I was annoyed in, in some, like, eye rolly. Uh, but not the way like Sweet Valley High to me was was you know pretty disgusting. 
I, I, I feel the same way we felt about the Hardy Boys. There's this sense of like it's oh, it's so it's so of its, its era in certain ways, and it's ridiculous and in its naivete, but it's actually really kind of positive and, and pleasant. You know, like I'd much mm-hmm. rather if I had a daughter, I'd much rather her read Nancy Drew than Sweet Valley Eye. Like, I was thinking about the the lineage of of uh, Nancy Drew to to Buffy. You know that there there is a weird line that mm-hmm. goes Nancy Drew to Buffy of small town filled with monsters, and she's the one thing that sort of restores order. You know, right? Yeah, and you so have to put Nancy. So I mean, it's Buffy obviously is a fucked up character. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I love Buffy. I think you have to put Nancy Drew in the context of she was created only nine years after women got the right to vote. I mean, that's mind-blowing that we have this girl, like, running around over town. That is astounding. And there was also something to... super for the time. There was also something to the fact that um, there's, you know, there's a lot of menless women in this book. Like, there are lots of, there are lots of, you know, the the opening of... Of a, of a little girl falling and and her saving her and then bringing her to this home where there are these two women who are essentially, you know, what at that time would have been considered spinsters, um, raising this girl and and they don't, you know, they can't make money. Their, their fingers are, it says that they're like dressmakers, but their fingers are too nimble. And, you know, and then the right. same but thing the fingers with are too the normal. old lady right. when she stops, like this woman is literally starving to death because she's 80 and she fell and didn't get help. So there is something to this book about what it means to be a woman at the time and that Nancy Drew is sort of going around, you know, standing up for these women who who can't make money in the, the economic situation that's given. So uh, one last thing um, that I want to discuss uh, is the part at which Nancy Drew is locked in a closet and immediately begins to think she's going to a starve to death and b die of suffocation though she's in a house above ground just in a closet well she could starve <laughs> to death i mean that would take about well no you, you well she would Once. only survive three days without water so three days okay but she wasn't in a she wasn't in a bank vault. She was in a closet. She, hey, eventually, she could have kicked I would the be door. very scared <laughs> being locked in a place and not knowing how. I mean, come on. I was actually surprised by how much physical harm she was threatened with. I mean, I, I was like, well, why true. aren't these guys that, killing her? I mean, yeah, they're, they're bad also, guys did lock her They're trying away. to kill her, but they're not actually going to shoot her. I mean, that scene is ridiculous, but... But, you know, it's a kid's book, it's, or it's yes. a young adult book of some sort. I don't know what age. I have no idea. What age are these aimed for? These these are for, like, 10-year-olds. How old are, how, You'd have to be really young. Well, I mean, who knows in 1930? And But here's the... Well, I was surprised that they made her 18. Yeah, that was my question, actually. is that 18 in 1930, you, you were married and had kids. You were about to be, yeah. You were about Didn't to they, be married. Yeah. Did they subsequently young her down in later books, Julia? Yeah, they did. Then she became 16 for a while. Okay. That makes good yeah. sense. Because like, my mom was married by the time she was 20 in 1957, you know, and that was 27 years later. And she wasn't solving but, crimes. But remember that this book was written by 
a 24-year-old woman. So this is basically written by, like, Peggy of Mad Men. So, you know, as you guys pointed well, out... 35 years before Mad Men. Like, that's what Sure, sure. But that, but that kind of, like, you know, not all... Not every single woman in 1929 was, you know, married by 17 or 18. I mean, right. like, to me, it's very clear that this was written by... For all the reasons you guys were saying before by quote-unquote real women because there's so many different kinds of women in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Nancy Drew, she doesn't need that shit, man. She just wants to solve crimes, solve mysteries. He, here's the one postmodern flourish to the book that I want to point out. Um, so, uh, listeners, she figures out where the secret will is. And just in case you don't get to the book, it's in the clock. Uh, or the key to the secret will is in the clock. But... The second to last paragraph of this book inexplicably goes like this. As Nancy stood looking wistfully at the old clock, she little dreamed that in the near future she would be involved in the hidden staircase mystery, a far more baffling case than the one she had just solved. But somehow, as Nancy gazed at the timepiece, she sensed that exciting days were soon to come. (laughs) Really weird. That's nice. That, that, that at least teaser. that at least is a serial that makes sense. What doesn't make sense is about halfway to River Heights, while enjoying the pastoral scenes of cows standing <laughs> knee high in shallow sections of the stream and sheep grazing on flower dotted hillsides. Like, what are you talking about? Why are we sitting? Half an hour later, she turned into the beautiful country road which wound in and out of the Muskoka River. Like, who cares? Like, why are we reading about, like, pastoral scenes in Nancy Drew? I don't understand. There, there are also a few key inconsistencies. For instance, in the opening scene, she goes into these old ladies' house where she's just saved the girl, and they tell her, oh, we can't call the police. Our phone doesn't work. And then Nancy gets home and calls them, and they answer the phone. <laughs> yeah, she's always able to call dun, people. Dun, dun. They, they're always able to call each other without ever looking at a phone yeah, book but, or she no, just but meet somebody and she phone doesn't work and suddenly it, it was cool though like when, that when she met somebody I think it was right at the beginning when she met them it says she gave them her name and her address I was like what why would you ever give out your address but please come abduct me well but I feel like back then yeah it's on page four Nancy was somewhat surprised to hear that these elderly women were rearing such a small child. She gave her name and address, just as Judy opened her eyes and looked around. So it was like, that's just what you did back then? I mean, I'm actually asking, is that a cure? Like, is that something that you did? You just... I don't think so. You gave off your name and address? Because people needed to know, Yes, you did. Yeah. That's so cool. Yes, you did. I mean, at the Mark Twain house... um, I mean, everybody knew where he lived because right. he was. They nobody had phones. I mean, he had a phone, but he was like the only one, so that's useless. Uh, and people would have calling cards with their name and address on them, and they would leave them at each other's houses to say, "Hey, right. come visit me." Right. Now, of course, that's much earlier than the 30s, but it, guys, it's right. not that weird for people to know your address. O- only 30 years ago was almost everybody's address in the phone book. Yeah. Oh, that's true. That's a good point. Well, my parents that's talk about I... the party line. Like, they, they lived on a street with a party line. Do you guys know what this yeah. is? Oh, awesome. Yeah. And yeah. they would, like, be able to hear the neighbors talking if their phone rang the wrong amount of times and they picked it up or whatever. It's so weird. Right. Do you guys remember 
the early uh, portable phones where mm -hmm. you would sometimes pick up the phone and you'd hear your neighbors on their portable phone mm -hmm. line? Did you guys ever have that experience? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was great. I learned a lot about the Nakamura's. the size of a suitcase. <laughs> My brother had one of those first cell phones. He had just gotten his first job in TV. I remember this like it was yesterday. And he drove up in his, uh, I think he had a, a red Miata, and he had uh, his giant cell phone so he could take calls from the studio, wherever he was, <laughs> when he was writing Spencer for Hire or Baywatch or something. Fucking it was just absurd, because you couldn't use it. It was like $8,000 to call someone on it. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. So, <sighs> we mentioned a, a, a boat explosion earlier. Let me just briefly read what we were talking about. Um, so, this is at the beginning of the book. Um, so, Nancy has just saved the little girl, and uh, so she is talking to the two women who are rearing the little girl, and one of the women says, I want to apologize to you, Nancy, for thinking you hit Judy, the woman said. I guess Edna and I lost our heads. You see, Judy is very precious to us. We brought up her mother, who had been an only child and was orphaned when she was a little girl. The same, the same thing happened to Judy. Her parents were killed in a boat explosion three years ago. The poor little girl has no close relatives except Edna and me. That's it. That's the only That's time it. there's a mention of a boat explosion. Well, but then exploding. also Nancy Drew's mom is dead. And there's right. But not of a boat explosion. I guess boat explosions But then explosions Nancy were... ends up on a boat at one point. Yeah, which doesn't go well for her either. But, but, didn't, no. but then, she, yeah, she ends up in a boat trying to start an engine, which is the, one of the yeah. most pointless scenes in the whole book. She rows, but it doesn't explode. She takes yeah. a boat somewhere and just... The engine... It runs out of gas, and she just hangs out. Yeah. And then it starts, and she goes home. <laughs> and it's like it never happened, except that she's sunburned. What, what is the point of that section? Except, here's, except to get her in the countryside and to describe some more beautiful scenery, which it does on page 96, I believe... Uh, or no, 94. Uh, as they sped along, Nancy kept glancing at the cottages intermingled with tall evergreen trees that bordered the shoreline. The delicate <laughs> azure blue of the sky and the mellow gold of the late afternoon sun were reflected in the shimmering surface of the water. There's a pastoral agenda going on. Fate was against her. That, that happened shortly thereafter. <laughs> The hours dragged by, and not another craft appeared in sight. Okay, I will say this. I like Nancy Drew better than the Hardy Boys. Yes, I agree. It's I weirder. Agree, yes. Weirder is better. Yeah. Really? I don't think it's that much weirder. I just think that, like, two boys, like, running around solving, is like, crimes, like, at 18, it's just not as big of a deal. But, like, an 18-year-old woman in 1930, like, the world is just more interesting and, and her involvement in that world is more risky and exciting. Whereas, like, the Hardy Boys, you're like, you kind of could just be two brats, like, getting up in your father's business. Yeah. Whereas, like, with her, it's like, there is a sense of, I don't know, there is a sense of injustice that she is writing a little, I, I don't know, more of a sense of injustice that she's writing that I enjoyed more. But maybe that's just the self-satisfaction of, like, that we get when we watch Mad Men and we go, oh, we're so much better now that women have more rights and we pat ourselves on the back for, you know, watching a TV show or reading Well, a she, book, she felt like she was in more jeopardy. Uh, I think that's the difference. Like, the two Hardy Boys, you feel like, well, there's maybe. two of them. If Hobo Joe attacks one, 
the other Hardy boy can, you know, knock him out. But Nancy's by right. herself. I think that creates natural right. jeopardy. She just has more of a personality. I mean, first of all, by virtue of being alone, you know, she's braver. She's cooler. She's doing weird stuff by herself. Like the Hardy Boys, do we even remember their first names? No. They're just faceless. Joe? Frank. Frank. Bob. Frank and Joe. Frank okay, and you Joe. guys remember. Frank was definitely one. But yeah. I mean, and I just think it's this, It's like the same formula, but slightly better written. And no. Yeah. No. That's it, man. It is not better written. It is equally poorly written. Did you did you hear that azure sky and shimmering water reflection passage? Did, did you notice, Julia, how the plot is non-existent and just things happen over and over again? That's true. No, That's true. Uh, Plot-wise, no plausible, I said slightly. No plausible tether to the scene previous that the book could be rearranged from beginning to end and it wouldn't change it whatsoever. Todd, let me ask you something. Yes. How many times did the word probate come up in the Hardy Boys? <laughs> That's true. I learned a lot more about the law in Nancy Drew yeah. than I ever learned in a Hardy yeah, exactly. Boys book. This was like being yep. a first-year law student reading this book. <laughs> yeah. We all have passed the bar. And that's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we read the graphic novel Shackleton's Journey by William Grill. Literary Disco is edited, produced, interrupted, and saved every week by Tucker Ives. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and thanks for listening. Theory, what's the difference between Nancy Drew and Trixie Belden? Let's see. Here's what I found on the web for what's the difference between Nancy Drew and Trixie Belden.